0: Every Day Peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We are everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Every Day Peacemakers are every day people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and me. I'm Jerry Swigert, And as always, we're going to ease our way into this conversation with one of Haley's questions of the week.
1: What was slash honestly, what may still be your favorite breakfast cereal?
2: Mmm, breakfast cereal. Love it. Breakfast was my favorite meal of the day, always, still is in a lot of ways, although the cereal has changed. But for me, it was a close one between Lucky Charms and the original Captain Crunch. I didn't like the Crunch Berries. But I'm going to just say, in this context, Captain Crunch, because we, we get a special cereal for birthday every year. That was oh, the only time I could buy like my sugar cereal was birthday. Um, and I would always decide, like I knew it was going to be another year until I could get it. So to go between the two was a two-year gap. You know, potentially, if I say yes to Lucky Charms versus Captain Crunch, but the Captain Crunch—remember the film that would be created on the top of your mouth? You would chew that, and it'd have like this, this film of—I'm not even sure what it was. It was no <laughs> doubt some art, artificially flavored uh, contraption. But uh, that was
0: that, and it would be like a—it'd be like a salve because it would trash the top of your mouth. So it was oh, like a that cream ex- That's exactly that.
2: right. It was a protective film because you will come out bloodied and bruised.
1: I echo your sentiments, John, that breakfast has always been my favorite meal and I'm no longer like allow us to have cereal in the house because I would just eat it three meals a day. If I could, um, I I think as a child, my favorite breakfast cereal was kicks.
2: Oh, kicks slightly sweet, surprisingly bland for a favorite.
1: (laughs) I loved kicks and and also, I, I, um, my mom, <laughs> this isn't a cereal, but it's a breakfast. Uh, it's, I guess it would, cereal is like the closest to what it would be. My mom would make graham crackers and milk, which is literally just graham crackers with milk poured over it. And oh, it's... Very, <laughs> wow,
2: that's, it's really <laughs> descriptive. I mean, it's a great description. I, thank you, thank you for clarifying that In case the
1: name, yeah, you, it was unclear.
2: Had she ever heard of a cereal called Honeygrams, which is actually, they do that for you. They pre, pre-prepare the graham <laughs> yeah, cracker. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, it is like leagues better. Next time I see you guys, I'm going to make you some graham crackers and milk because oh,
2: it wait. blow
1: your mind. So good. I can't
2: wait. I like that you say <laughs> you're going to make it for us as if it's
0: like the recipe is really hard.
1: <laughs> hey, you have to get the ratio right you gotta get the ratio right so let's be clear
0: you take a package (laughs) of graham crackers and a hammer you you knock them all up and then you you put them in bowls and sprinkle some milk
1: i don't appreciate how you're oversimplifying this process
0: (laughs) okay okay no it sounds delicious (laughs) sounds exquisite really uh I you know, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say it was always a toss-up between frosted mini wheats and cinnamon toast crunch. Ooh, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Cinnamon toast crunch. Man, so I, I was, the crunch. yeah, the cinnamon toast crunch, the, the soggy factor, you know, because I liked it, I liked it crispy and I liked it soggy. Mm-hmm. So it was an enjoy an enjoyable experience, start <laughs> to finish. And then that milk, <laughs> that milk, you know, oh, you would yeah. take your spoon, you would take your spoon and you could swirl it and you could see that stuff swirling on top, and then you would just drink that down. Oh
1: I know, that's what I think of every time I have horchata. It tastes like Ooh,
0: it's like cinnamon cin- co- toast <laughs> crunchmel. Great conch parallel, milk. totally.
1: <laughs> uh, we're gonna be hearing a little bit from John Huggins today. We have been going through in our podcast, you know, getting to hear from people from the everyday peacemaking community, and every once in a while, we're also gonna circle back around and talk to talk to John Jar, or me about um, our experiences, everyday peacemakers. So today, we'll hear from John and some of the. Thinking he's done around how we as Christians engage with politics. John, ever since um, I started on the team a few years ago, I've heard you talking about um, how we as Jesus followers need to and how we should be engaging uh, with politics. And I I would love to hear, though, more about the story, kind of the motivation. Why is this something that you feel so much conviction around?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Isn't it interesting how the things you often feel the most conviction around are a result of an earlier part of your story where it's almost like you you, you have to right some of the wrongs that you inherited or participated in? And I think that's somewhat true for me. I mean, I grew up in, as I've probably mentioned on here— a conservative evangelical home with an amazing family, with great intentions, uh, but with a worldview that was very much shaped by our engagement with the United States of America and our participation in it was, um, was unquestioned and its connection to militarism and um, a version of patriotism was my primary grid for understanding how God worked in the world. I mean, I have I have so many distinct memories of being in close proximity with a faith that was very, very connected to the United States and the Empire as a primary expression of God's faithfulness. And again, I don't I actually don't feel um, frustration or resentment towards that because the intention was so good so oftentimes. I mean, I can remember my dad, going off to war during the Gulf war, he was deployed for a year and I still admire him so much for his commitment, um, and his service and how he interpreted how that was connected to his following Jesus that led him to that space. But, but I also have memories of, you know, being at friends houses where we're watching the, that Gulf war happen on CNN and watching bombs drop on communities of people that we were deeming our enemy, even though we had no idea who they were. And, um, and then be part of Sunday school classes that would either not talk about it or celebrate it. Um, and so there was this – this. That we also had a really precarious relationship with the Republican Party, you know, and uh, my grandma's a matriarch in our house really perpetuated that and threaded it into our faith. And if you step out of line, then you're stepping out of line politically with stepping out of line – Uh, in your faith as well. And so because that's something I inherited and, and so many American evangelicals inherited the same paradigm, um, I, I inevitably, at some point, as you grow up, are going to run out, you're going to run to the end of any one worldview and begin to ask it questions like, where, where have you led me? (laughs) And in, in my, my early twenties, when I began to to run into questions that forced me to think about our world in a different way. That if God's kingdom is not only about the United States, but about the entire world, and if God said to not only love neighbor, but love enemy, and that God so loved the world, not just the U.S. Like It just started, there were these questions theologically, and even as I encountered the, the Bible and Jesus were provoking big questions about what I had inherited and how that connected to the United States and our alignment with nationalism, ultimately seeing that the United States was God's divine gift to the world was so much of, of what I inherited. I walked away from it. I, I walked away from that worldview completely and, and, and kind of embraced this. Uh, I'm just not going to engage in politics at all. Like civic engagement is off the table. That, that is a destructive um, potentially idolatrous path. I refuse to go down again. And so, um, even going into seminary, that was largely my view that that we don't talk about politics. We talk about Jesus, like just Jesus, kind of expression of faith. And and loved studying that um, in seminary. Everything from you know the early communities of the Essenes in the first century and the, the monastics and. Uh, Most captivating to me was the uh, post-Reformation communities, Anabaptists, radical reformers, and the ways that people like Stanley Harawas were articulating a faith that was a a community of faith that was living out the Jesus way in such compelling ways outside of the boundaries of empire that it was actually going to be a a witness or a reflection that would change the empire because you're living such a powerful alternative, which again is such a beautiful expression of like this grounded, rooted faith that costs... something that looks like something. Um, but then, you know, in the context of real life, uh, real life classrooms and real life relationships, specifically with those on the underside of power, that was also a very, that, that paradigm for lack of engagement with civic, um, responsibility or with politics became insufficient. It was insular. And, um, as I began to have friends, who are impacted by our policies, plead with me to remember that the way that we vote, the way that we act, the way that we behave impacts them, impacts their family, impacts the future and flourishing of their children, from Christian Palestinians to undocumented neighbors. And and I have story after story of this community, who are now people I love and friends, helping me realize that I have a luxury a privilege as a U.S. citizen to leverage my blue passport on behalf of those that are on the underside of power. And so, so this like all in kind of nationalistic faith was not going to work, but nor was the passive apolitical faith because that was just a reflection of my privilege. You know, we talk about in this team, that privilege is just the ability to walk away. And I had been given the ability to walk away and, uh, it was costing my neighbors. and so it just forced me to rethink about how I engage politics and engage our systems and structures as a
0: citizen of the kingdom of god john the the, the journey that you've taken is um, one of the ways that I think I would describe it is that you you've you've chosen to break rank from. Uh, the, the way in which you were groomed, you know, you're breaking rank from the community that has shaped you and their, their ideas around faith and politics and this or that. Can you talk a little bit about what did the experience of breaking rank has been like? Uh, because I imagine so many of us are in the space where we're too recognizing, ah, the nationalist thing doesn't work. The, the apolitical escapism doesn't work, you know, but I feel like I'm going to have to break rank in order to enter into a third way. What's been the cost for you and how have you navigated that journey?
2: It's been really hard. You know, when you're when you're three generations of military officers and your your faith, your family faith is shaped by your orientation to politics and your votes. And then you you're someone who says, I actually I share the faith, but I don't share the worldview. Um is hard. It's costly. It's, it's provoked really difficult conversations. It worse though, it's, it's provoked silence, like a silencing from, especially some patriarchs in my family who don't see my worldview as adequate, as okay. And so it's for me to come to a place where um, I can love that community and that family without compromising my core convictions has been some of my greatest journey. Uh, and, 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 really forced me to become more whole myself. Like, this isn't just a thought like, Oh, how do I, on a more academic or cerebral level, think about how I engage politics? No, like, this is a part of baked into my bones, my convictions. If I just maintain the status quo. My neighbors continue to be deported and separated from families. And my other neighbors and friends on the other side of the world continue to get bombs dropped on them and experience more military occupation. Like this is not something I can walk away from, but the cost of that means I have to find my identity um and my call outside of the
0: approval of people that I love. And that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a quick follow-up because I I think what's dawning on me as I'm listening to you is is the stakes of this, right? Because uh, as as we're moving forward organizationally with this, um, with all of our resources around conflicted allegiance, which is an invitation to take the very journey that that you've taken, John. There, we talk about peacemaking at an internal, and interpersonal, and a systemic level, and I just heard you in the in this in your story talk about the interior interior internal work. the the peacemaking that has to happen there. I'm hearing you talk about how that's informed by systemic realities when you're talking about learning from those who have been marginalized by power. And now I'm also hearing you talk about how it's costly at a relational level, and you could either choose to abandon those people and choose new friends, or you could press in and see the opportunities for some interpersonal peacemaking work here. And so I, it's pretty comprehensive. Um, and are, do you f- find yourself navigating those three spaces simultaneously then? And how do you do it?
2: Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the great piece in all this and, and why our understanding of peace, um, or, or for me, and I inherited a, an understanding of salvation as a very individualistic thing. Like I, if I could get right with God, then I'm in good shape. And kind of how I interface with the world is secondary. It doesn't really matter because God is about saving me and evacuating me from this world so I can experience salvation. When my understanding of peace, understanding God's shalom or holistic repair, God's restorative work in the world isn't just about my personal soul. It's about all the systems and structures. Peacemaking requires we we, we disrupt any pseudo peace, whether it's personal interpersonal, or systemic. And so this journey towards understanding a bigger gospel, a bigger good news, a bigger salvation that included systems and structures, forced me to take a different position on those systems and structures, which then impacted my interpersonal relationship to peace, but forced me to be grounded in my personal peace so I could stay, move into those hard conversations and conflicts. So yeah, that's an important tie-in and it means it reshapes things. For example, like I now see protesting... As a very central act of my conviction as a follower of Jesus, it's actually disrupting a pseudo peace that's broken to wake us up to what is broken so we can participate in fixing it. So so standing at a, a, a protest at the detention center or marching around New York City after Eric Garner's murder is peacemaking practice. It's it's a it it requires a, a conflicted allegiance. It says my allegiance is to the kingdom of God, so I will put my feet on this soil. But I'm also going to participate in in changing the broken systems that continue to kill our neighbors and separate neighbors and 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 intoxicate me with power and ego. So yeah, it's a, it's a precarious space. But I think that's all what we're saying is formation, it's discipleship. Um, but it's a level of nuance I think that is is really important, um, but often absent from a lot of our peacemaking conversations.
1: So John, how does living a conflicted allegiance inform how we engage with the 2020 election?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the ways we talk about this is that someone who's embracing a conflicted allegiance is always prioritizing our allegiance to the kingdom of God, while at the same time leveraging our influence as US citizens. Like we can actually make changes on a systemic level with that blue passport. But the question we're asking is, first and foremost, what are the values of the kingdom of God and how are we promoting policy that's reflective of that? And so uh, that that's a helpful starting point for me personally. Like the kingdom of God values is stuff that I think we need to be fluent in as followers of Jesus. So then I'm not just aligning with one, blindly aligning with one political party, no matter if they, you know... Are, are way out of bounds on some policy issues. I'm, I'm aligning with policy that's reflective of the kingdom. So that means that it requires more nuance than picking your favorite partisan candidate and placing all of your hope in them. Our hope remains in the kingdom and it informs our votes. And so, um, you know, we have to think about a, a holistic vision of what is the, what's a vision for, uh, for a common good, for a common flourishing. And How am I going to vote towards those ends? That I'm not just picking one issue and and then abandoning everything else uh, as if it's secondary. When If I just pick one issue, if I'm a one-issue voter, whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, I can just perpetuate unbelievable problems in our world that's impacting people that are just outside of our sight lines. If we were in relational proximity to those people, we probably would shift how we think about that. But so many of us keep our blinders on because we just have that one thing. We stick our, our flag in the ground, and we actually aren't participating in bringing about any kind of healing or restoration that God might have in mind. We're just perpetuating our party line and I think that's gotten us into so much trouble uh, in the political system especially as Christians who have unabashedly given our uh, our allegiance our votes to one set of worldviews, one set of topics and issues and and it's run aground.
1: follow-up question to that is do you see conflicted allegiance being exclusively in this political in a political space? Or is the conflicted allegiance something that transcends politics into our daily lives?
2: Yeah, I think it absolutely transcends politics. I think right now the moment is so focused on that because we, we happen to be in an election year. But from my perspective, this is ultimately a reorientation of our worldview to to say we have to be reminded of our worldview being shaped by the kingdom of God and its values. And then that is going to show that's going to inform how I show up on my streets, how I show up in my city council meetings, how how I protest, what borders I cross, and what kind of relationships I build because I'm not being driven. We are, as Stanley Harawas would say, we are we are exiles here in an empire as kingdom citizens. And so we have to have that worldview shape us all the time. When we get too familiar with power, we get too close to the empire, we can begin, uh, to make assumptions about how we function in the world that perpetuates a lot of problems. And so I think it's important for us to to remain to, to keep a conflicted allegiance in that we're always on our heels, we're always sniffing out when we're getting too comfortable, especially people like myself as a white straight Christian man in the United States, have become so familiar with power. And privilege that I begin to read myself into the story, you know, into the biblical story, in in ways that aren't true to the context I'm in today. I, I begin to think that um, my contribution internationally is always positive, when reality and historic historically, it's not always been the case. Um, so, uh, I, I think being people who live a conflicted allegiance is going to put us into proximity with those um, who are are continually being run over by our broken systems. And it allows us to give
0: our lives to undoing those. So John is obviously we're, we're listening to this on our way to the voting booth in November. And uh, I hear you talking about the values of the kingdom. And I think you're probably juxtaposing those from the, the values of the nation state called the United States of America. Um for those of us who are listening in and are, you know, maybe we've been part committed to a particular party our entire lives, how would you encourage us as we're making our way to the voting booths or as we're filling out our ballots at our kitchen tables preparing to mail them in in light of this messaging? What like what are the values? How do you how do you want to bless us as voters uh to to leverage this right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we should start by um by saying the Lord's prayer and reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, to get oriented to the kingdom and its values. Uh, And then we probably should consider who was considered first and foremost in that kingdom. You know, it's those on the outside, it's the children, Uh, get, get faces to names to imagine, okay, this is, these are the values that inform how I show up in my voting booth. And then to ask a question like, Is this an opportunity for me to actually give my vote to someone who doesn't have one? I know that's that's how our family's thinking about this election. There's a lot of things I could vote on that would benefit me um, in my social position, but I'm not sure that's the the kingdom vote. And so, is there someone in your neighborhood that doesn't have a vote um, or is underrepresented that you can actually give your vote to because maybe that is the kingdom way to engage the voting booth, not just about you know, accelerating your path to power or your 401k, but about seeing the flourishing of those on the outside who are often kept outside looking in because of the institutions
0: we've built around them. And can you you help us understand a little bit more? Like, what do you mean, give them our vote?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I think of families that are closest to us in our neighborhood, um, who are impacted by broken systems are undocumented neighbors. You know, the COVID-19 stuff is going on right now. Uh, They are not getting stimulus support. We are. Um, We qualify because of our blue passport and our income. So what would it look like for me to vote for my undocumented neighbors so they would have a pathway to citizenship so they can actually have a vision for a future that includes not just uh, the next six months, but the next 60 years for their children? So that's how I'm thinking about it. What's the, what are the votes that I can make that'll lead to them um, being able to take a breath and be released from some of the anxiety and the fear of deportation and the uncertainty of being able to send their kids to college in the future?
1: Thank you, John, for reminding us that we are exiled kingdom citizens living in the empire and for casting a vision for what it looks like for our kingdom values to inform our political presence friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know that you are not alone.
2: For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.